Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode takes us to the region just north of classical Greece, in the century that would come to be dominated by Alexander the Great, and although we will discuss Macedon, our focus in this episode is Bardilus, the king of the Illyrians. Bardilus united the warring tribes of Illyria to create a powerful kingdom, conspired with the most powerful Greek ruler of the day to threaten Spartan supremacy in southern Greece, and perhaps most critically, may have helped push the development of the combined warfare that would allow the Greeks to conquer the mighty Persian Empire. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 2, Bardillus, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Bardilus was born in the early second half of the 5th century BC in Illyria, a region on the northwestern part of the Balkan Peninsula. Today, this region along the Adriatic coast roughly corresponds to the countries of Albania, Montenegro, Kosovo, and Upper Macedonia. He was born around the time that the First Peloponnesian War ended, an essential stalemate between Athens and Sparta. It was the era of Pericles, although by the time Bardilus was in power himself, it was probably closer to the year 400 BC, if not quite that late. By that point, Athens had been thoroughly defeated, and Sparta was the remaining major power in mainland Greece. To the east, the Achaemenid Empire was the major power pretty much in the world. Artaxerxes II ruled from Thrace across Ionian Greece and western Anatolia, through Mesopotamia and Persia, up into Central Asia, and as far east as the Indus River. This empire was not without its issues, as civil wars occurred, including one that ended in the famous Anabasis of the 10,000 Greek warriors in 401 BC. Egypt successfully rebelled at the beginning of the century, with various Greek city-states getting involved. To the south of Egypt, the once powerful Kushite kingdom had been pushed further south from Napata, to instead center on Meroe. East of Persia, India was in the period of urbanization that manifested in 16 different kingdoms and oligarchies, known as the Mahajanapada period. They were much more united by this time, with only four major kingdoms, including Magadha, the predecessor to the short-lived Nanda Empire, which would lead to the Mauryan Empire. To the north, the Scythians, the Saka, the Masagate, the Uaji, and other nomadic cultures were spread across the steppes, from the northern Black Sea across Asia into northern China. China had moved on from the spring and autumn period into the Warring States period. The powerful state of Jin was partitioned into three successors, Han, Zhou, and Wei. The state of Qi was growing in power too, and soon the various states would stop pretending to be subservient to the Zhou king, and their rulers would call themselves kings rather than dukes and marquesses. In the Western Hemisphere, the Olmec culture abandoned their great city of Leventa around this time, 
and their eastern lands in today's Tabasco region of Mexico saw significant population decline. Slightly further south in today's Oaxaca, the Zapotec culture began to build their great temple complex at Monte Albon. The Chavin culture was probably the predominant civilization down in Peru, although there were others. Back across the Atlantic, the most powerful African empire was ruled from Carthage. They controlled most of the coastal lands in the southwestern Mediterranean, as well as parts of Spain and some of the islands nearby. Their obsession with Sicily, probably because of its proximity to Carthage itself, brought them into conflicts with the Greeks there, and they tangled with the most powerful Greek ruler outside of Sparta, Dionysius, the tyrant of Syracuse. The north of Europe was populated with various Celtic cultures, at least until you got far enough north to hit the Germanic cultures, which were only just starting to establish themselves south of Scandinavia. The Etruscans still covered most of northern Italy, while Greek colonists held the south. The Roman Republic had been established a century earlier, although it still ruled over a very small region just around the city. Early in the 4th century, the Gauls, led by Brennus, sacked the city, and Marcus Furius Camillus, Season 1, Episode 1, later called the second founder of Rome, was eventually able to chase them off. Camillus and Bardellus may have been born in the same year. Speaking of Bardellus, he of course lived on the other side of the Adriatic from Camillus, in the region the Romans would come to call Illyricum. Illyria was to the north of Greece, but interacted very closely with the Greek world it probably makes sense to go over the geography of the Balkan Peninsula. The Peloponnese was in the south, with Sparta. Crossing the little Isthmus of Corinth gets you to Attica and Athens. Northwest of Attica was Boeotia, with Thebes as that region's largest city. West of Boeotia, on the other side of the Gulf of Corinth from the Peloponnese, was Aetolia. North of Boeotia and eastern Aetolia, was Thessaly, which was at this point sort of the borderlands of Greek power. Beyond Thessaly, there were kingdoms and tribes that were part of the Greek world, but weren't universally considered Greek. The best known were the Macedonians, up the east coast of the peninsula, north of Thessaly. Beyond Macedon lay the region of Thrace, which stretched north well into modern Bulgaria, and east to Byzantium and the Bosporus. On the other side of the Balkan Peninsula, going north from Thessaly, was Epirus. Epirus was still kind of Greek, and the Molossians there were one of the major tribes. Epirus, like Macedon, was heavily influenced by the Greeks, and through alliances were often a major part of the political situation in the later classical Greek era. But a lot of the Greek city-states considered them barbarians, or at least halfway to being barbarians. The Thracians, on the other hand, were pretty much considered full barbarians, and so were the Illyrians. Illyria was the next land up the west coast from Epirus, without a doubt beyond Greece proper. Like the Epirotes, Illyrians weren't part of just one kingdom, but rather a group of different tribes. Tribes included the Dardanians, the Dalmatians, the Paeonians, and the Albani. But unlike in Epirus, where a dialect of Greek was the main language, In Illyria they spoke, well, Illyrian, although we don't know much about the language itself. Pretty much nothing of the language survives outside of place names. It probably was a much more distant cousin of Greek, part of the broader language group from which the Balkan languages derived. 
it was likely more closely related to Thracian. And while it is also tempting to assume it's close to Albanian, which is its own little branch off the Indo-European language family with no real close languages, the fact is we just don't know. But since the language was not Greek, it is probably safe to assume that they were culturally pretty different than the Greeks, at least more different than the people of Epirus were. When Bardilus was born, Illyria was made up of a group of disunited kingdoms. It's probably a better description to refer to them as tribes. Bardilus himself wasn't the son of a chief or some other royal. He is said to have started out as a charcoal burner, a job which likely signifies he had humble origins, whether it is actual fact or just a legend. Charcoal burning is the process of making charcoal out of wood in massive kilns. This process could take a week or more, and involved regular checking of the wood to make sure it was smoking but not getting enough oxygen to have fire. It was usually done in relative isolation, so the whole point was that even if Bardillus wasn't actually a charcoal burner, he apparently came out of nowhere. His origins otherwise are pretty shrouded in mystery, or screened in smoke, if you will. But what appears to be common across most references today are two things. One, Illyria was absolutely disunited before Bardillus. They probably conducted raids into the lands of their more Greek-like neighbors, but we're talking small, uncoordinated raids. And remember, these neighbors themselves were people like the Macedonians, who the Greeks considered barbarians. The Greeks probably saw the Illyrians as cavemen. The second commonality that appears pretty consistently in the sources is that Bardillus shared the spoils with his soldiers. While this was, of course, something that was usually done in some amount, how else would you get people to come fight for you, it's probably noteworthy because he did something different. The easiest assumption to make is that while most tribal warlords shared a little bit with his men and kept the rest for themselves, he shared a lot. But we don't know for sure, and we certainly don't know how he even went from being a charcoal burner to a leader of raids into Epirus and Macedon. What we do know is he was a leader of raids into Epirus and Macedon, and with each success, his generous philosophy with his warriors led to more people flocking to his banner. At some point, perhaps by the turn of the century, he had united several southern Illyrian tribes together. This was probably when you could be a bit more confident in calling him a king of Illyrians, even if he wasn't really the king of all Illyria. According to Robin Lane Fox in Brill's Companion to Ancient Macedon, quote, Bardillus was king of a realm along Lake Orid and east to the two Prespa lakes, the Deserates of later topography, unquote. You can look it up, but the area around these lakes today makes the border between Greece, Albania, and northern Macedonia. Bardillus's lands were probably larger than that and may have extended towards the south and west, more into modern Albania, but he might not have held significant influence much further north. Further south and west was Epirus, and to the south and east was Macedonia. From his territory, Bardillus was able to raid south into Epirus and threaten the Molossians, and he could raid east into the lands of Lincestus, the hinterlands of Macedon. The neighboring kingdom of Macedon had grown in strength significantly during the 5th century BC. Alexander I was the viceroy, if you will, of Achaemenid Macedonia, but sympathized with the Greeks. He fed them intelligence ahead of the Battle of Plataea, and his forces slaughtered a Persian army attempting to retreat back to Anatolia at the Strymon River. 
tribal conflict resumed, but the kingdom was once again pulled together under the king Perdiccas II. Archelaus succeeded him and brought Macedonia further into Greek orbit while continuing to solidify the kingdom and build it into something more than its northern neighbors. But when he died, the kingdom fell into a decade of chaos. Kings came and went quicker than usual and died, well, pretty much just as violently as usual. Bardilus, of course, saw this as an opportunity. He almost certainly raided into Macedonia multiple times, but in 393, he managed to do something bigger than a raid. He formed an alliance with a pretender to the Macedonian throne, Argaius. Argaius had royal Macedonian blood, but evidence suggests that he was little more than a puppet of Bardilus. Bardilus, with Argaius by his side, raided into Macedon and forced their king Amyntas III to flee the kingdom. But Amyntas was eventually able to rally help from allies in Thessaly and returned, recapturing his throne. Now in charge of a weakened kingdom after years of chaos, Amyntas had to deal with the Illyrians and may have been forced out several more times. Eventually, in an attempt to defuse the constant attacks, the king would send his son to Illyria to live as a hostage. The Illyrians, meanwhile, seem to have been united at some level under Bardellus by this point. The opportunity for raids and the spoils that came with them may have been what pulled the various tribes together. There is little evidence of any kingdom before him, and even this kingdom may have been relatively small, not encompassing all of the Illyrian tribes. And so, he wanted more. In 385, an alliance was formed with one of the most powerful men of the day, Dionysius I, the tyrant of Syracuse. The exiled king of Epirus, named Alcetas, was a refugee in Dionysius' court in Syracuse. According to Diodorus Siculus, Dionysius quote, made an alliance with the Illyrians with the help of Alcetus the Molossian, who was at the time in exile and spending his days in Syracuse. Since the Illyrians were at war, he dispatched them an allied force of 2,000 soldiers and 500 suits of Greek armor. The Illyrians distributed the suits of armor among their choicest warriors and incorporated the soldiers among their own troops, unquote. With the influx of Syracusan troops, Bardellus probably had to think about his tactics. Even if these were infantry, they fought differently than his own soldiers, and with a tradition of light cavalry in his raiding, Bardellus may have begun with this campaign, his use of combined arms. This would be a complex army with cavalry, light infantry, and hoplites, probably more complicated than what he had commanded in the past. The campaign, as Diodorus writes, began successfully, and over 15,000 Molossians were killed. Eventually, however, it appears the Spartans felt that they had to act before the Illyrians poured into Greece proper. Well, that, and Dionysius' goal was, allegedly, to sack the oracle at Delphi in order to gather up all the goodies that had been donated there over the centuries. The Spartans, who were the dominant power, well, other than the Persians and Dionysius himself, anyway, they gathered some allies and marched up, either defeating Bardilus in battle or just forcing him to withdraw further north. But this conflict may well have been massively consequential, not just to the history of northern Greece, but to the larger world. As Timothy Howe puts it in his paper on how Bardilus influenced the Macedonian military, quote, the arrival of the Sicilians and their weapons initiated or at least accelerated this combined arms development in the Illyrian military strategy, 
In fact, one might even argue that the incorporation of Greek arms and fighters with Illyrian horsemen and soldiers as a first step in the integrated strategy of combined cavalry and infantry that, later in 385, allowed Bardilus to continually devastate the armies of Epirus until Sparta decided to pacify the region by sending an army to drive the Illyrians out, unquote. Bardilus retook Epirus soon after the Spartans left, and probably held it for another few decades. But that's not what makes it important. This is so consequential, because soon after this conflict, after the point when Bardilus developed a method of combined arms that wasn't prevalent in Greece, he invaded Macedonia again, and he forced King Amyntas to flee sometime around 385 or 382 BC, according to Diodorus. Amyntas regained his throne once again, and negotiated another peace with Bardilus, but this time he sent a hostage in the form of his newborn son, Philip. Philip's mother was from the region, Illyrian or part Illyrian, so Philip made a natural hostage, and it was probably thought to be a relatively safe exchange. Now, it's not clear just how long Philip stayed in Illyria. It may have been a decade, which would give Philip of Macedon some time to observe and learn from Bardilus at the time when Bardilus was experimenting with combined arms warfare. You see where I'm going with this? Philip didn't stay in Illyria, though, and eventually was sent down to Thebes. Sources seem to agree that after Amyntas died, the Macedonian regent Ptolemy of Alarus, in charge for Amyntas' son, got Philip transferred as a hostage into Greece proper, although the reasoning and details around that aren't clear. Ptolemy eventually began an affair with the young Macedonian king's mother, and had the boy killed. He may have seized the throne himself, but either way, another one of Amyntas' sons, Perdiccas, killed Ptolemy and became King Perdiccas III. Around 360 BC, it seems Bardilus raided again down into Epirus, forcing the Molossian king, Arabas, there to flee. Arabas allied with the Macedonian king, Perdiccas III, in an attempt to regain his power, he was able to force the Illyrians back when they started to lose cohesion as an army, focus more on plunder than on conquest. His alliance with Perdiccas, though, resulted in a marriage alliance. Arabas' niece, the daughter of his brother and the former Molossian king, was married to Perdiccas's brother Philip. Bardilus, for his part, turned from Epirus instead to Macedon, perhaps because Perdiccas was trying to reconquer Upper Macedonia. For a limited account of the battle, I'll turn to Diodorus Siculus again. Quote, the Macedonians had lost more than 4,000 men in the battle, and the remainder, panic-stricken, had become exceedingly afraid of the Illyrian armies and had lost heart, unquote. We really don't know much about the battle, other than Bardilus marched into Macedon and routed his enemy. King Perdiccas himself was killed in the battle, and the other Macedonian neighbors took advantage of the ensuing chaos. Bardilus began to once again try to put a puppet king on the Macedonian throne, although others also had their own horses to back. Perdiccas's 23-year-old brother Philip, who had spent time in Bardilus's court as a youth, came out on top. One of his first priorities was to show his independence from Bardilus. The Illyrians had been asserting their influence over Macedon for generations now, with puppet kings and conquests inside of Upper Macedon. Philip was determined to end this threat. Now around 90 years old, Bardilus had his armies take care of the Macedonians plenty of times in the past, 
but a full mobilization of Macedon probably convinced him to try for a peace. His peace, however, would maintain the status quo, which included his power over Upper Macedon. Philip wasn't going to accept that. So both sides gathered their armies, and some sources suggest that they met to try and hash it all out. When they couldn't come to a peace that both sides wanted, they started a fight. Philip, according to the ancient sources, adopted the tactics of Thebes, where he had been held captive. But it is clear from the description of the battle that he also adopted the tactics of Bardilus, utilizing his cavalry and his infantry in a truly combined strategy. Philip led the phalanx on the right, while he sent his cavalry around that same flank. Knowing he probably had the advantage in heavy infantry, he pushed the Illyrians back enough to make a strike with the cavalry devastating. This combined attack broke the Illyrians and sent them flying. It is presumed by many that Bardilus died in the battle, although that's not clear. The Illyrians soon sued for peace and were able to obtain it without a massive pursuit by Philip, albeit while surrendering Upper Macedon. This suggests that perhaps Bardilus was still alive as his death might have thrown his realm into complete chaos. Although his son Clytus did rule after him, so it's possible that the peace came during an orderly transition of power. Whether or not he survived this particular battle, this is the last we hear of Bardilus. At least 90 years old at this point, he may have died soon after the fight. For his part, Philip was able to assert control into Upper Macedon and held lands as far west as Lake Orid, the westernmost of the three lakes that was Bardilus's heartland. As noted earlier, this happens to be along the border today between Greece, North Macedonia, and Albania. This may have meant that the Illyrians that Bardilus ruled were pushed somewhat southward, or simply that they were still there as his vassals. Beyond that, Philip had a few more successes as a king. He significantly expanded his own kingdom, and he brought Thrace to the north into a dependent status, before doing something similar with Thessaly, basically uniting all of northern Greece under him. He was able to assert his influence on the Peloponnese before he was assassinated. His son and successor Alexander conquered the world. But back to Bardellus, because if Alexander learned everything he knew about military strategy from Philip, it seems that Philip learned much of what he knew from Bardilus. Seems like maybe without Bardilus, it would have been quite a bit harder for the conquest of Persia and the advent of the Hellenistic world. As for the Illyrian kingdom itself, well, it was never really that united. Bardilus held the various Illyrian kingdoms together with the promise of conquest and spoils, rather than any sort of really unifying government. After his death, his son Clytus seemed to rule over many of the Illyrian tribes as a king. We know of him because about 20 years later, in 335 BC, he fought against Philip's son, Alexander the Great. Clytus allied with a few other Illyrian kings as Alexander was trying to pacify Thrace in order to prepare for his invasion of Asia. Alexander marched from the Danube down into Illyria and besieged Clytus at Pelium. He began to dig in, but Clytus's allies arrived and pushed the Macedonians back. Alexander decided to establish his own camp in order to protect his troops, rather than rush into a siege. He marched along the river to do so, but the Illyrians perceived it as more of a retreat. Alexander's men saw evidence that the Illyrians were beginning to let their guard down. So at nightfall he attacked, 
and he smashed the Illyrian troops, who, for the most part, were sleeping. Clytus was able to get away, and Alexander was confident that he had subdued the region. He was correct. Clytus may have actually ruled as a vassal king, and his son, Bardilus II, ruled the reduced kingdom. Bardilus's daughter, Bersena, married the king of Epirus to the south as part of a marriage alliance. Bardilus II, though, was a junior partner in the alliance with this Molossian king, Pyrrhus of Epirus, who was considered one of the greatest generals of his time, waging war against Rome and Italy and Carthage and Sicily, as well as fighting with the Macedonians in the wars of the Diadochi, season 2. The Illyrian dynasty that Bardilus established died out from there, and eventually the Romans pulled the region away from the Macedonians prior to taking the rest of the region. The Illyrians remained a people, or rather a group of people, but independence would remain elusive. After the Romans, it was the Eastern Romans, the Byzantines, the Serbs, the Ottomans. It wasn't until 1912 that Albania declared independence, which included at least some of Bardilus's lands. The rest went to Yugoslavia after World War I. Bardilus united a kingdom, albeit a relatively small one, by pulling together various Illyrian tribes with the promise of plunder from their neighbors. He was successful enough that he ended up ruling a strong kingdom north of Greece, one that the powerful tyrant of Syracuse allied with in his attempts to plunder the Hellenic world. And Bardilus held influence and sway over the faltering Macedonian kingdom for a significant portion of his long reign. Bardilus's kingdom didn't last much beyond his lifetime, and that may well have been because of his own military innovations. These seemed to pass on to one of the Macedonian kings who he held sway over, Philip II. Philip took from Bardilus concepts of combined warfare, incorporated this with the phalanx tactics he learned in Thebes, and created a new type of warfare, one that would be nearly unstoppable for a century or two. Next episode, we'll move east, and ahead a couple of centuries, to learn about a king who took power from some of the successors to Philip and Alexander, and became a rival to Rome. Thanks for listening. <laughs>